Part 1, Chapter 1 of The Morals of Marcus Ordeen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. The Morals of Marcus Ordeen by William John Locke. Part 1, Chapter 1. The reasons which will be given later, I sit down here in Verona to write the history of my extravagant adventure. I shall formulate and expand the rough notes in my diary which lies open before me, and I shall begin with a happy afternoon in May, six months ago. May the 20th. London. Today is the seventh anniversary of my release from captivity. I will note it every year in my diary with a sigh of unutterable thanksgiving. For seven long, blessed years have I been free from the degrading influences of Jones Minor, and the first book of Euclid. Some men find the modern English boy stimulating and the old Egyptian humorous. Such are the born schoolmasters, and schoolmasters, like poets, nascunta non fiunt. What I was born passes my ingenuity to fathom, certainly not a schoolmaster, and by many years of apprenticeship did not make me one. They only turned me into an automaton, feared by myself, bantered by my colleagues, and sometimes good-humouredly tolerated by the boys. Seven years ago, the lawyer's letter came. The post used to arrive just before first school. I opened the letter in the classroom and sat down at my desk, sick with horror. The awful wholesale destruction of my relatives paralysed me. My form must have seen by my ghastly face that something had happened, for, contrary to their usual practice, they sat, thirty of them, in stony silence, waiting for me to begin the lesson. As far as I remember anything, they waited the whole hour. The lesson over, I passed along the cloister on my way to my rooms. I overheard one of my urchins, clattering in front of me, shout to another, I'm sure he's got the sack! Turning round, he perceived me, and grew as red as a turkey cock. I laughed aloud. The boy's yell was a clarion announcement from the seventh heaven. I had got the sack. I should never teach him quadratic equations again. I should turn my back forever upon those hateful walls and still more abominated playing fields. And I was not leaving my prison, as I had done once or twice before, in order to continue my servitude elsewhere. I was free. I could go out into the sunshine and look my fellow man in the face, free from the haunting, demoralising sense of incapacity. I was free. Until that urchin's shriek, I had not realised it. My teeth chattered with the thrill. I was fortunately out of school the second hour. I employed most of it in balancing myself. Perfectly reasonable creature, I visited the chief. He was a chubby, rotund man with a circular body and a circular visage, and he wore great circular gold spectacles. He looked like a figure in the third book of Euclid but his eyes sparkled like bits of glass in the sun. "'Well, Ordine?' he inquired, looking up from letters to parents. "'I've come to ask you to accept my resignation,' said I. "'I would like you to release me at once.' "'Come, come, things are not as bad as all that,' said he kindly. I looked stupidly at him for a moment. "'Of course I know you've got one or two troublesome forms,' he continued. Then I winced. His conjecture hurt me horribly. 
Oh, it's, it's nothing to do with my incompetence, I interrupted. What is it, then? My grandfather, two uncles, two nephews, and a valet were drowned a day or two ago in the Mediterranean, I answered calmly. I have since been struck by the crudity of this announcement. It took my chief's breath away. I deeply sympathise with you, he said at last. Thank you, said I. A terrible catastrophe. No wonder it has upset you. Horrible. Six living human beings, three generations of men. That's just it, said I. Three generations of my family swept away, leaving me now at the head of it. This moment, the chief's wife came into the library with the morning paper in her hand. On seeing me, she rushed forward. Have you had bad news? Yes. Is it in the paper? I was coming to show my husband. The name is an uncommon one. I wondered if there might be relatives of yours. I bowed acquiescence. The chief looked at the paragraph below his wife's indicating thumb. Then he looked at me as if I, too, had suffered a sea change. I had no idea, he said. Why, now, now you are Sir Marcus Ordeen. Sounds idiotic, doesn't it? said I with a smile. But I suppose I am. And so came my release from captivity. I was profoundly affected by the awful disaster, but it would be sheer hypocrisy if I said that I felt personal grief. I knew none of the dead, of whom I verily believed the valet was the worthiest man. My grandfather and uncles had ignored my existence. Not a helping hand had they stretched out to my widowed mother in her poverty, when one kindly touch would have meant all. They do not seem to have been a lovable race, the Ordines. What my father, the youngest son, was like, I have no idea, as he died when I was two years old. But my mother, who was somewhat stern and puritanical, spoke of him very much as she would have spoken of the prophet Joel, had he been a personal acquaintance. Seven years today have I been a free man. Feeling at peace with all the world, I called this afternoon on my aunt Jessica, Mrs. Ordine, who had borne me no malice for stepping into the place that should have been the inheritance of her husband and of her son. Rather, had she devised to adopt me, to guide my ambitions, and to point out my duties as the head of the house. If I refuse to be adopted, avoid ambitions, and disclaim duties, the fault lies not with her goodwill. She is a well-preserved, worldly woman of fifty-five, and having begun to dye her hair in the peroxide of hydrogen era, has not the curiosity to abandon the practice and see what colour will result. I wish I could like her. I can't. She purrs. Some day I feel she will scratch. She received me graciously. My dear Marcus, at last, didn't you know I have been in town ever since Easter? No, said I, I'm afraid I didn't. It was true. Why didn't you tell me? I would have asked you to dinner, but you will never come. As for at-home cards, I never dream of sending them to you. It is a waste of precious halfpenny stamps. You might have written me a nice little letter about nothing at all, I suggested. For you to say, what is that woman worrying me with her silly letters for? I know what you men are. She looked arch. This is precisely what I should have said. As I am not an inventive liar, I could only smile feebly. I am never at my ease with Aunt Jessica. I am not the kind of person to afford her entertainment. I do not belong to her world of opulence, and, if even I desired it, 
which the gods forbid, my means would not enable me to make the necessary display. My uncle, thinking to retrieve the fallen fortunes of the title, amassed enormous wealth as a company promoter, while I, on whom the title has descended, am perfectly contented with its fallen fortunes. I have scarcely a thought or taste in common with my aunt. In fact, I must bore her exceedingly. Yet she hides her boredom beneath the radiant countenance, and leads me to understand that my society gives her inexpressible joy. I wonder why. She was always beguiled philosopher and friending me. I resent it. A man of forty does not need the counsels of an elderly woman destitute of intellect. I believe there are some women who are firmly convinced that their sheer sex has imbued them with all the qualities of genius. Today, my aunt tackled me on the subject of marriage. I ought to marry. I asked why. It appeared it was every man's duty. From what point of view, I asked, the mere propagation of the human race, or the providing of a superfluous young woman with a means of livelihood? If it is the former, then in my opinion there are too many people in the world already. And if the latter, I'm afraid I'm not sufficiently altruistic. You are so funny, laughed my aunt. I was not aware of being in the least bit funny. But seriously, she continued, you must marry. She is a woman who has an irritating way of speaking in italics. Are you aware that if you have no son, the title will become extinct? And if it does, I cried, who on this earth will care a halfpenny bun? I'm growing tired of the title. At first it was rather amusing. Now it appears it is registered in heaven's chancery and hedged about with divine ordinances. Only the other day an unknown parson requested me to open a church bazaar, and I gathered he had received his instructions direct from the Almighty. Why, everyone would care, exclaimed my aunt, genuinely shocked. It would be monstrous. You owe it to your descendants as well as to your ancestors. Besides, she added with apparent irrelevance, a man in your position ought to live up to it. I do, said I, just up to it. Now you are pretending you don't understand me. You ought to marry money. I smiled and shook my head. I don't think my aunt likes me to smile and shake my head for I saw a flicker in her eyes. No, my dear aunt, emphatically no. It would be comfortless. If I kissed it, it would be cold. If I put my arms round it, it would be full of sharp edges which would hurt. If I tried to get any emotion out of it, it would only jingle. What do you want, then? Nothing. But if I must, let it be plain flesh and blood. Cannibal, said my aunt. We both laughed. But you can have plenty of flesh and blood with money as well for the asking, she insisted. And thereupon my two cousins, Dora and Gwendolen, entered the drawing-room and interrupted the conversation. They are both bouncing, fresh-faced girls in the early twenties. They ride and shoot and bicycle and golf and dance, and the elder writes little stories for the magazines. As I do none of these things, I am convinced they regard me as a poor sort of creature. When they hand me a cup of tea, I almost suspect them to pat me on the head and say, Good dog. I am long, lean, stooping, hatchet-faced, hawk-nosed, near-sighted. I have not the breezy air of the jolly young stockbrokers they are in the habit of meeting. They rather alarm me. Moreover, they have managed to rear a colossal pile of wholly incorrect information on every subject under the sun, 
and are addicted to letting chunks of it fall about one's ears. This stuns me, rendering conversation difficult. As I had not seen Dora since her return from Rome, where she had spent the early spring, I asked, in some trepidation, for her impressions. Before I could collect myself, I was listening to a lecture on St. Peter's. She told me that it was built by Michelangelo. I suggested that some credit might be given to Bramante, not to speak of Rosalino, Baraldarazzi Prezzi and the two Sangallos. Oh, said my young lady, with a superb air of omniscience, it was all Michelangelo's design. The others only tinkered away at it afterwards. After receiving this brickbat, I took my leave. To console myself, I looked up, during the evening, Michelangelo's noble letter about Brabanti. One cannot deny, says he, that Brabanti was as excellent in architecture as anyone has been from the ancients to now. He placed the first stone of St. Peter's, not full of confusion, but clear, neat and luminous, and isolated all round in such a way that it injured no part of the palace, and was held to be a beautiful thing, as is still apparent, in such a way that anyone who has departed from the said order of Brabanti, as Sangallo has done, has departed from the truth. Michelangelo did not like Sangallo. Neither did he like Bramante, who was his senior by thirty years. But this makes his appreciation of the elder's work all the more generous. Tinkered away at it, indeed. May the 21st. I spent all the morning at work by the open window. I have a small house in Lingfield Terrace on the north side of Regent's Park, so that my drawing-room, on the first floor, has a southern aspect. It has been warm and sunny for the past few days, and the elms and plane trees across the road are beginning to riot in their green bravery, as if intoxicated with the golden wine of spring. My French window is flung wide open, and on the balcony a triangular bit of sunlight creeps round as the morning advances. My work-table is drawn up to the window. I am busy over the first section of my History of Renaissance Morals, for which I think my notes are complete. I have a delicious sense of isolation from the world. Away over those treetops is a faint purpurine pall, and below it lies London, with its strife and its misery, its wickedness and its vanity. Twenty minutes would take me into the heart of it. And if I chose, I could be as struggling, as wretched, as much imbued with wickedness and vanity as anybody. I could gamble on the stock exchange, or play the muddy game of politics, or hawk my precious title for sale among the young women of London society. My Aunt Jessica once told me that London was at my feet. I am quite content that it should stay there. I have much the same nervous dread of it as I have of an angry sea breaking in surf on the shingle. If I ventured out in it, I should be tossed hither and thither and broken on the rocks, and I should perish. I prefer to stand aloof and watch. If I had a little more of daring in my nature, I might achieve something. I am afraid I am but a waster in the world's factory. But kind fate, instead of pitching me on the rubbish heap, has preserved me, perhaps has set me under a glass case in her own museum as a curiosity. Well, I am happy with my shelter. I was interrupted in my writing by the entrance of my cook and housekeeper, Antoinette. She was sorry to disturb me, but did monsieur like sorrow. She was preparing some veau à l'oiselle for lunch, and Stenson, my man, had informed her that it was disgusting stuff and that monsieur would not eat it. 
Antoinette, said I, go and inform Stenson that as he looks after my outside, so you look after my inside, and that I have implicit confidence in both of you in your respective spheres of action. But does monsieur like sorrel? Antoinette inquired anxiously. I adore it even, said I, and Antoinette made her exit in triumph. What a reverential care French women have for the insides of their masters. At times it is pathetic. Before now I have thrown dirty morsels which I could not eat into the fire, so as to avoid hurting Antoinette's feelings. I came across her three years ago in a tiny hostelry in a tiny town in the Loire district. She cooked the dinner and conversed about it afterwards so touchingly that we soon became united in bonds of the closest affection. Suddenly some money was stolen. Antoinette, accused, was dismissed without notice. I had a shrewd suspicion of the thief, a suspicion which was afterwards completely justified, and indignantly championed Antoinette's cause. But Antoinette, coming from a village some eighty miles away, was a stranger and an alien. I was her only friend. It ended in my inviting her to come to England, the land of the free and the refuge of the downtrodden and oppressed, and become my housekeeper. She accepted with smiles and tears, and there were great big smiles that went into creases all over her fat red face, forming runnels for the great big tears which dropped off at unexpected angles. She was alone in the world. Her only son had died during his military service in Madagascar. Although her man was dead, the law would not regard her as a widow because she had never been married, and therefore refused to exempt her only son. On ne peut être jeune qu'une fois, n'est-ce pas, monsieur she said in extenuation of her early fault. And Jean-Marie, she added, was as brave a fellow and as devoted a son as if I had been married by the Saint-Père himself. I waved my hand in deprecation and told her it did not matter in the least. The Della Scalas, supreme lords of Verona for many generations, were every man jack of them so parented, even William the Conqueror. Dear, cried Antoinette, consoled, and he became Emperor of Germany, he and Bismarck. Antoinette's historical sense is rudimentary. I have not tried since to develop it. When I brought my victim of foreign tyranny to Lingfield Terrace, Stenson, I believe, nearly fainted. He is the correctest of English valets, and his only vice, I believe, is the accordion on which he plays jaunty hymn tunes when I am out of the house. When he had recovered, he asked me, respectfully, how they were to understand each other. I explained that he would either have to learn French or teach Antoinette English. What they have done, I gather, is to invent a nightmare of a lingua franca in which they appear to hold amicable converse. Now and again they have differences of opinion, as today over my taste for Vaux à la Suelle, but on the whole their relations are harmonious, and she keeps him in a good humour. Naturally, she feeds the brute. The duty impulse, stimulated by my call yesterday on one aunt by marriage, led my footsteps this afternoon to the house of the other, Mrs. Ralph Ordeen. She is of a different type from her sister-in-law, being a devout Roman Catholic, and, since the terrible affliction of two years ago, has concerned herself more deeply than ever in the affairs of her religion. She lives in a gloomy little house in a sunless Kensington by-street. Only my cousin Rosalie was at home. She gave me tea made with tepid water and talked about the Earl's Court exhibition, which she had not visited, and a new novel, of which she had vaguely heard. 
I tried in vain to infuse some life into the conversation. I don't believe she is interested in anything. She even spoke lukewarmly of Farm Street. I pity her intensely. She is thin, thirty, colourless, bosomless. I should say she was passionless, a predestined spinster. She has never drunk hot tea, or lived in the sun, or laughed a hearty laugh. I remember once, about wit's end for talk, telling her the old story of Theodore Hook accosting a pompous stranger on the street with a polite request that he might know whether he was anybody in particular. She said, without a smile, Yes, it was astonishing how rude some people could be. And her godfathers and godmothers gave her the name of Rosalie. Mine might just as well have called me Hercules or Puck. She told me that her brother intended to ask me to dine with them one evening next week. When was I free? I chose Thursday. Oddly enough, I enjoy dining there. Although we are on the most formal terms, not having got beyond the Sir Marcus and Mrs. Ordine. But both mother and daughter are finely bred gentlewomen, and one meets few, oh, very, very few among the ladies of today. I reached home about six and found a telegram awaiting me. Sorry can't give you dinner. Cook in an impossible condition. Come later. Judith. I must confess to a sigh of relief. I am fond of Judith, and sorry for her domestic infelicities. Though why she should maintain that alcoholised wretch in her kitchen passes my comprehension. If there is one thing women do not understand, it is the selection, the ordering, and the treatment of domestic servants. The mere man manages much better. But, that aside, Antoinette has spoiled me for Judith's cook's cookery. I breathed a little sigh of content, and summoned Stenson to inform him that I would dine at home. A great package of books from a second-hand bookseller arrived during dinner. Among them were the nine volumes of Pietro Giannoni's Historia Civile del Regno di Napoli, a copy of which I ought to have possessed long ago. It is dedicated to the most puissant and felicitous Prince Charles VI, the great, by God crowned Emperor of the Romans, King of Germany, Spain, Naples, Hungary, Bohemia, Sicily, etc. Is there a living soul in God's universe who has a spark of admiration for this most puissant and most felicitous monarch crowned by God Emperor and King of the greater part of Europe, and docked of most of his pretensions by the Treaty of Utrecht? We only remember the forcible, feeble person by his pragmatic sanction, and otherwise his personality has left in history not the remotest trace. And yet, on the 12th of February 1723, a profoundly erudite, subtle and picturesque historian grovels before the man and subscribes himself, Of your holy Caesarian and Catholic majesty, the most humble and most devoted and most obsequious vassal and slave, Pietro Giannoni. What ruthless judgments posterity passes on once enormous reputations. In Giannone's admiral introduction, we hear of Il celebre Arthadac, il quale oltre a con confini della sua Inghilterra, volle in altri a più iontani paesi, and a vrintracciando l'uso alla rotirita delle romane leghi nei nuovi domini dei principi cristiani e di che le di Cristiasceduna nazione vola ancora avalconto, la ricerca nella vicina Scozia e nell'Ibernia, trapasso nella Francia e nella Spagna 
in Germania, in Italia, and al nostro regno ancora. Si stese inoltre in Polonia, Bohemia, in Ungheria, Danimarca, nella Svezia, ed in più remote parte. The devil of a fellow, this celebrated English Arthur Duck, who, besides writing a learned treatise, De Use et Otho Jus Civilorum in Dominius Principum Christianorum, was a knight, a member of Parliament, Chancellor of the Diocese of London, and a master in Chancery. Gino only fancies himself out for a couple of pages before this prodigy, whom he lovingly calls Aririo, as who should say Raffaello or Giordano. And now, in the hearts of men, lingers Sir Arthur Duck. One thing he had a bad name. Our English sense of humour revolts from making a popular hero out of a man called Duck. Yet we made one of Drake. But there was something masculine about the latter. In fact, everything. I'm afraid it was rather late when I got to Judith. End of chapter 1